in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you guys know who I am, so just, all right, I have to think through things this way. So in the MCU, one of the supervillains that you can't help but love, yes, you can love supervillains, you can have empathy for them, you can't help but love, you can't help but root for and just desire to see that arc of redemption in their story is Thor's little brother, Loki. Gotta love Loki, right? He's known as the Asgardian god of mischief in both the comic books and also in, in, in the movies. And Loki is constantly attempting to assert himself as someone who is entitled to status and power and all the trimmings that come along with it. And obviously it never works out for him. It just doesn't. Uh, his big brother is always there to put him back in his spot. He gets tangled up in fights with Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers, and he just gets shut down at every turn, thankfully, because he's the bad guy. But you still kind of love him. You can't help but like the guy, and you can't help but finish his personal motto. Anytime he begins to herald himself and his perceived greatness, he says, I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose what he says every time he announces himself it's just like dude you got a you got a power trip going on absolutely and as misguided as it is Loki really does feel like he's obligated to become a king and when you get to explore his character you see that he comes from trauma he is an orphan he is he's been adopted he's got a lot of things in his heart that have been misguided and I think that when you see things like that in popular culture stories you can see human nature and you can see things that everybody might wrestle with certain people might wrestle with thankfully we have jesus right that's something the mcu doesn't have just yet so we see that he he feels this need to become king to inflict pain because he has felt pain to to claim victory because he has felt defeated throughout his life. And he wants to do this over as many people as possible so he can feel worthy. That's what he's looking for. He wants to feel worthy of glory and fulfillment. He is looking for purpose in his life when you get down to the root cause there. And like Loki, many people spend most of their lives in search of life's purposes, maybe not in supervillain ways, but you get my point, right? Nobody here is trying to find the Tesseract and take over the world. But you might be on some sort of journey in your life to, 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 to wrestle with the question like, what is my purpose? What am I to be doing with my life? And maybe it's starting some sort of initiative. Candace and I were blessed last night to be a part of a foster care gala at a, um, uh, at a big banquet where our foster care agency uh, had their recognition for the year. They did a big fundraiser. They gave away some awards. We were invited, honored to be among the people that we were sitting with, uh, just recognized because of what the Lord has been doing. But the lady who founded that organization some 31 years ago was there in attendance. And I thought, man, how cool would it have been to sit where she was and see the enormity of what started in her heart as a God-given vision and to see how it has grown over these years. And she's not been active there in a number of years, but, but she was able to see that legacy there. And I thought, man, what, what a way to have purpose. Or maybe you're on a path to, to finding the right career. You, you want to know what you're supposed to be doing with your life. Maybe it's finding something within a career uh, where there is the ability to impact others or make the world a better place. 
you might be wrestling with purpose today in your life. And every one of us, I would like to think, wants our lives to count. We want our lives to have some sort of glorious purpose in some way. We want our lives to have meaning. We want to be remembered for something, right? We know that there has to be more to life than, than what we see sometimes, so we search for anything and everything quite often uh, that can give us purpose. And the problem is we tend to view purpose as something that we have to find instead of something that is given. We look for it in the wrong places and miss the point that God has said, your purpose is in me, in your relationship to me. So friends, listen, true purpose isn't found in the things of this world. It's found in Jesus. Genesis 1.27 says that each one of us, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter the color of your eyes, your hair, or lack thereof, each one of us is created in the image of God. We bear his image. Even in our sinful brokenness, we still have his image imprinted upon us. And as image bearers of this amazing God, we are to display his glory to the world. Uh, do you recognize the incredible nature of that purpose? You're looking for purpose, it starts there. God offers you purpose that's attached to him. You guys see that, right? So no matter who you are or what you have done, your life can have purpose because your purpose isn't based on you. It's based on him. That's where your purpose is. So when you trust in the finished work of Jesus, God redeems you for his purposes. The question is, is what does that actually look like in your life? And it's going to look different for all of us. But my point today is we begin that journey of glorious purpose in Jesus. Apart from him, you will not ever have true and meaningful purpose. So how do we live a life with God-given glorious purpose? That's what I was wrestling with this week as I was studying this passage. And in our study today, we're going to look at the life of Paul and sketch out hopefully a model of what it looks like to live a life of glorious purpose. We're going to go through and dissect this farewell speech to the Ephesian church and just kind of see some of the stuff that, that bubbles to the top with Paul. And so let me briefly give you the setting real quick. Paul had been in Ephesus, a city there in Asia Minor, Asia Minor, for around three years at this point. So he had spent some time there. He'd been there for a while. He'd gotten invested in the church. But he's about to head to Jerusalem and then on to Rome where he assumes, rightly so, that he's going to be executed for his faith in Jesus. He knows that nothing but hardship lays ahead of him. And, and we're going to hear Pastor Ken preach more on that in the couple of weeks following this. But he knows that things are about to get tough for him. But he is on this mission. Like Jesus had set his face like flint Toward Jerusalem is what the New Testament tells us. Paul is much on the same journey here. He is not going to die like Jesus as, as, as you know, a, a sacrifice, but he's going to become a martyr for the purposes of Jesus. So he calls together the Ephesian church leaders for this final farewell speech. And it's a powerful moment in the book of Acts. It's, it's why we kind of paused before we got to this. 
There's some significance here. It's why we kind of took a break for a little bit and then we're coming back. This is a pivotal moment in the entire book of Acts. And what we're going to see is that Paul is going to lay out a summary of his life's purpose is essentially what he's doing. And just a side note here that I think of, is of some importance. It kind of, I, I felt that it was important. It floored me when I learned this. This is the only extended speech in all of Acts that is specifically to Christians. That's important. That's something to hold on to because all of the other speeches and sermons that are recorded were made to unbelievers, a plea to them to come to the cross, to know Jesus. And so this is important because I believe this text points us to how Jesus desires for us as his followers for the Ephesian people in their day and for us today, some 2,000 years later, to live for him. So I want to explore just briefly just, just, just six values from this passage of how to live a life of glorious purpose. And the first one is this. If you would like to live a life of glorious purpose, it starts with this. Be humble. Humility. Look at verse 17. This is Luke writing. He's chronicling this journey. He says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, that he is Paul, and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, here's verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. With all humility, Paul was able to faithfully endure the tears, the trials, because his life wasn't about building his kingdom. It was about furthering God's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. Paul's goal was to direct people's attention not to himself, but to Jesus. He wanted to say, no, I reflect the glory back to him. And sometimes the greatest opportunities that we have in our lives to point people to Jesus come during trials, come during the tearful moments of our lives where our reaction can either do one of two things. It can either point people to Jesus or it can point people to to us and how we implode upon ourselves and don't handle hard situations. Suffering well tends to point people to Jesus. It's when things are hard and we feel the weakest that we often have the greatest ability to point to the sufficiency of the Savior. And the late pastor and author Tim Keller, he just passed away earlier this year, somebody that was highly influential on me in studying missiology and studying preaching. Uh, he, He said this, he said, a humble and weak person will show a crucified Savior better to a listener than a polished, pulled-together expert. Because that's how it's happened for us. We weren't saved by pulling ourselves together, but by admitting we were sinners and calling on the one who was pulled apart for us. Paul was able to faithfully endure the tears and the trials because he recognized what Jesus faithfully endured for him. Jesus endured those same things. You see, humility begins by understanding your need for the grace that only Jesus offers. 
in the midst of your sin by recognizing your insufficiency, your hiccups and hang-ups, your need for an all-sufficient Savior. That's where it starts, humility. Paul humbled himself in all areas of his life for the sake of the gospel so that he could further the good news along. So in other words, he took a back seat. And when you take a back seat, things can get uncomfortable. Yes, Paul experienced difficult times, but they didn't sideline him. They didn't keep him out of the game because he realized that his purpose wasn't comfort, it wasn't success or fame, it was pointing people to Jesus. That was his purpose. That's what he had his life calling. So in, is that true for us today? Do we do the same thing? Are you living a life of humility with the goal of pointing people to Jesus? Do you begin with humility, or are you living a life that points people to yourself? Because as Philippians tells us, Paul wrote there that Jesus stepped out of heaven. He left the throne and humbled himself, wrapped himself in flesh, and he humbled himself so much that he died on a cross for us. So friends, listen, humility leads to an overflow of generosity in our lives. Humility, you can't help but be a generous person when you begin with the humility of Jesus. Generosity is willfully giving up what you have for the purpose of making Jesus known, for glorifying him in your life in every facet. It is leveraging your time, your talent, your treasures, who you are for the purpose of God's kingdom and not your own kingdom. So can that be said about you today? So if you're desire to live a glorious life for a glorious purpose, you have to start with humility. Secondly, we must be truthful. So be humble. Secondly, be truthful. Look at verse 20, and then we'll jump down and look at 25 through 27, because Paul's kind of saying the same things in these verses, so I tried to group them together for us. But in verse 20, he says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. So he's talking about declaring the gospel because the gospel is profitable. Truth is profitable. Then verse 25, he says, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Here we go again. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So if you want to condense that down, Paul was truthful. He spoke truth, truth in love. Paul saw himself primarily as the bearer of a message. As a messenger, he was not responsible for whether people liked it or not, only that they heard it. And the messenger often gets ridiculed, often gets made fun of, often gets interrupted in the middle of their, their speech, right? But Paul said, listen, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I declared this. This was very serious, right? And that's an odd statement, isn't it? Innocent of the blood of all men. And why would he use that language? It sounds rather, rather bold. He uses that language because he sees this is a life or death message, 
This is news that must get out. Paul is likely here thinking about the passage in the Old Testament where the prophet Ezekiel says this, Ezekiel 33.8, says, When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Man, that's a scary passage, isn't it? It's what God is telling to the prophet Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel didn't want to have to declare what what God was telling him to declare. And God's like, if you don't, I've told you the truth. If you don't share that, that's bad news for you. The, The blood of the people will be on you. I will hold you accountable. That's terrifying. The gospel is an announcement, guys. The gospel is an announcement that the human race stands underneath the judgment of God because of our rebellion. Because we have rebelled. We are sinful people. The gospel starts with bad news. Very, very bad news. News that nobody likes to hear. News that when you come to church, you're like, dude, do I have to hear this again? How terrible I am? That's the news. We are dead in our sin, and there's nothing we can do about that. It's bad news. But... After the bad news comes the really, really good news. It proceeds to give us this awesome news. In fact, gospel simply means good news. That's what it means. It's the greatest news. God so loved the world. We just sang it this morning. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's Jesus who came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived the sinless life that we were supposed to live and then died the sinner's death that we justly and rightly deserve to die, but now he offers forgiveness as a gift to everybody. It doesn't matter who you are who will receive it. That's good news. The gospel declares that if you will turn from your rebellion, turn from your sin, repent, and admit that you need to be saved, that you cannot save yourself, repent of those things, he will save you and give you eternal life. What better news do you need this morning? It's good news. So this is the truth that we are to share with people. And and listen, we're not responsible for how people respond. Ken and I were talking about this Friday mornings. We get together, we try to pray a little bit. We try to talk about the church, try to talk about different sermon ideas. We bounce things off of each other, but mainly we just, you know, we're friends and we hang out and we just want to talk. And we were talking about this very same thing this past week. It's like sometimes, and I'm guilty of it too, I shy away from getting into deep theological conversations with people because sometimes you don't have time to explain the Trinity while somebody's working on your truck, right? You know, I mean, you ever tried to explain the Trinity to somebody? It's, It's hard, right? But listen, you're not responsible for making sure that everybody knows every jot and tittle of Scripture when you're sharing with them. You're not responsible for how they respond. You're responsible for making sure that they hear it and you do your best to understand it. And if you just tell people who you were before Jesus, how you met Jesus, and how you were different after Jesus, people can try to argue with you but they cannot argue with what Jesus has done in your life. So start there. Share the gospel as it has impacted you. Paul knew it was his purpose as a disciple of Jesus to share this truth with others. Do we know that today? Do we understand that? 
Do we share the truth of the gospel? Do we really believe this message that there is a real heaven and a real hell? And if we do, are we sharing the good news so that people can avoid eternity separated from their Savior? There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's blessings. But friends, listen, there is something wrong with putting your head in the sand and pretending the world is not broken and the world is not lost and in need of Jesus. We can't just bury our head in the sand and refuse to engage. We have to live our life in a way that impacts this world for the glory of God. And we have the truth that sets people free. So are we sharing it today? Amen. Awesome. Good stuff right there. So if we desire to live a life of glorious purpose, you got to be humble. got to be truthful. Thirdly, be diverse. You're like, what does that mean? Look at verse 21. He says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. So shorthand there is Jewish people and then everybody else, right? He didn't have just one type of people he went to. He says, Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So a couple of questions for you to ponder as we wrestle with this point. Number one, do you believe the gospel is for all people? Yeah, amen. If so, are you living a life that reflects that? Does your life reflect diversity, as in how God is a diverse God? Friends, listen, may we never become a church that says the gospel is for all people, but not reflect it. And one thing that I can say that I think Mount Healthy does well here, what God has done in our midst, is we are a diverse church. Ken and I also were talking about this. We're diverse ethnicity-wise. We're diverse socioeconomically. We're diverse with, with different ages, different generations. God has done a really awesome work here of showing how the gospel brings people together under its singular banner. And we need to understand that for Paul to preach and share a multi-ethnic gospel, he had to live a multi-ethnic lifestyle, meaning that he had to intentionally pursue relationships with people who were different from him. They looked different from him. They talked different from him. They thought different from him. He had to pursue these things on purpose because those things don't just happen, intention, or don't just happen uh, you know, spontaneously. It was the gospel that compelled him to do that. And you see, the gospel is the only thing that can bring people together who are radically different from one another. When we went through the gospel of Mark, I had a chance to preach on the disciples. And it, was, it blows my mind at how you had Matthew, who was Levi, who was a tax collector. He was a sellout of his own people. He was you know, ripping people off left and right. Jesus called him. And then Jesus also called Simon the Zealot who was like an assassin, who was probably going through crowds of people, assassinating them with a knife, just as quietly and in and out. People didn't know what happened. That, that was the zealots. So they hated people who worked for Rome. They hated the Romans, and especially their Jewish kinsmen who sold out and worked for the evil empire themselves. So Jesus called those two men together to be disciples in the same cohort, the same small group. The gospel brings radically different people together. And when that happens, we get an amazing display of who God is. So friends, listen, a homogenous church doesn't reflect the gospel. But a diverse, 
multi-ethnic, multi-generational church does. And I'm so thankful for the work God is doing here and showing that expression of himself. And not only does that reflect the gospel, it also allows us a foretaste of what it will be like in heaven when we worship with every tribe, tongue, and nation. We talk about that a lot. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people from all over the world. God is rescuing them. Doesn't matter who they are, the color of their skin, What matters is that they have repented and placed their faith in Jesus. So does the gospel compel you to be intentional with people who are different from you? I hope so. So if you desire to live a life of glorious purpose, you got to be humble, be truthful, seek diversity. Number four, be surrendered. Be surrendered. Look at verse 22. Paul says, and now behold, Bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God." Now, these verses are kind of problematic for those who falsely preach and teach the prosperity gospel. I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, you see, the prosperity gospel teaches that Jesus is your personal cheerleader. He is there for your personal gain. He's there for your health, your wealth, your best life now rather than when we get to heaven. It's a gospel where you're the hero and Jesus is simply your means for success. And that is completely opposite of the gospel because Jesus is the hero. We are surrendered and sold out to him. So the Bible teaches that that we are to be that way. And that's what Paul believed. And Paul understood that the gospel wasn't a call to a life of success. It was a call to a life of surrender. And this is something that I have struggled with. Like you get wrapped up into ministry, you get wrapped up into what it it looks like to serve in in upper echelons of ministry and how different pastors are are portrayed in the media and on social media. And sometimes you can get wrapped up in in that, like where's, where's the platform for me? Why don't this number of people follow me on Twitter? Whatever. Like sometimes people wrestle with that. And what people deem as successful really isn't success at all. Success is being surrendered to Jesus, no matter what he calls you to in life. And I'm sure some of you might be like, well, here it comes again, this one-hit wonder, right? Uh, But listen, all I've got is the gospel. (laughs) If I only have one song to play, I'm going to play that one, and I'm going to keep singing that old, old story over and over again. The gospel that the Bible teaches is that we are sinful, that we are wicked, and we need a Savior. God steps in and transforms us. And when you receive the gift of forgiveness that Jesus offers, it changes everything about you because you realize what you've been given and what you've been saved from and who you are now surrendered to. So Paul, he didn't consider his life valuable to himself is what he says. He saw his life as something to steward and leverage for the most valuable thing, and that's Jesus. And that's the foundation that enabled Paul to be certain 
of what he says, the race that he is running, this ministry he is pursuing. He was running after Jesus. He was pursuing his life's call from Jesus. Paul wanted to be fully surrendered to his Savior, and he wanted to finish with Jesus welcoming him home. He says elsewhere that, that for him to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And he, he didn't know which one would be better. He just wanted to do whatever God had been calling him to do. So friends, listen, at some point, you're going to finish your race too. We all are. One of my dear friends in ministry, I served on staff with, you know, 10 years ago when I was in Bible college, saw one of the most, when, when we were there, Candace and I, at New Heights Church in Pineville, Kentucky, we saw one of the most fruitful seasons of ministry that we could have ever imagined. Young people coming to know Jesus left and right, sharing the gospel in public schools with their friends. Like, it was, a, it was awesome to see this movement of God. And Pastor Mark Elkins, I didn't always agree with him. We butted heads a little bit, but he shaped me and showed me a lot of pastoral things in life. And I was thinking about him. He passed away from, from cancer last week. And just the outpouring of love from the community there in eastern Kentucky that, that was shown because he had ran his race well. He finished strongly, and he pointed everybody that he could to Jesus. And I thought, man, what a way to run your race. You know, the last time I checked, the death rate in America is still 100%. It's that way all over the world. And the question is, is how do you want to finish life? How do you want to finish your race? Do you have the same desire that Paul does here? Do you want to head into eternity knowing that you stewarded the time God gave you, leveraging all that you had for him? You know, a lot of people start their Christian life well, but they don't finish. They drop off at some point. And you know why? Because most of the time, it's because that version of Christianity is just a religion. It's just a checklist. It's just a one-time prayer or an emotional experience that they have at a revival meeting, but yet they never come back to church again. You see, everyone wants a Savior, but not everyone wants a Lord because you have to submit. And in our, you know, current mindset with living in a democracy in America, it's hard for us to, to imagine a king and a monarch and how you are subject to them. But that's how we are to Jesus. You can't separate the two. You can't separate the Savior from the Lord. And inevitably, inevitably what happens when we're faced with surrendering to Jesus or surrendering to the things of the world, we often pick the things that are most comfortable, things that are easier. We choose comfort and careers and money and convenience and pleasure and approval. There's nothing wrong with wanting things in life like that. But when they become what you are submitted to, that's where the sinfulness comes in. And in doing that, we've missed what Jesus has offered to us, and that's himself. If all we ever get is him, that is all we ever need. So, What's causing you to take your eyes off of Jesus today? You know, there are some of you that are being tempted to quit today. You're being tempted to quit. In some area of your life, the enemy has beaten you down, and you're like, dude, I'm on the mat. I'm ready to tap out. I'm done. It could be to give up on your marriage. It could be to give up on a family member that's wayward, somebody that you're praying diligently before but not seeing any results or any fruit. 
It could be to give up on sharing the gospel with your friends, your coworkers, your family, to quit living for Jesus because it has gotten hard. His calling on your life has been difficult. And no matter what you try to do, it seems like things are beating you down at every turn. But let us remember the encouraging words of Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus ran the race. He ran it perfectly, and we can trust in him, and his perfection is overlaid onto us, and that's how God sees us. So be surrendered today. Keep running the race God has before you. Finish and finish well, because it's all going to be worth it when you run across the finish line that one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your Lord. It's going to be a great day. So if you desire to live a life of glorious purpose, be humble, be truthful, seek diversity, be surrendered. Number five, be invested specifically in the local church. Verses 27 through 32, Paul says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to the, the pastors and the leaders there. And he says, you know, these, these people who you are to shepherd, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Listen to that language, how he talks about the local church there. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. See the investment there? He's saying, I did this in tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So not only was Paul faithful to teach the gospel with boldness, but he also invested himself fully in the local church with the people he was among. And look at how he talks about the church, how invested he was. He says it was purchased with Christ's blood. That's how important it is. He had invested so heavily that in verse 29, he says that he, he cried, that, that it pained him to leave. He was pleading with them in tears. So friends, listen. There is only one institution that Jesus died for, one body that he gave his life to create, and that is the church. He gave himself for us. No one has made a bigger investment in any institution. Jesus gave himself for his bride. And Paul is basically saying, if Jesus poured out his blood for the church, I'm going to pour my life into serving the church, into serving the people of God. I know that my role, and I know that your role, is different than Paul's. But the, the principle here is that Paul was invested in the local church at Ephesus. He was not a casual attender. He was deeply devoted, deeply committed to his faith family, no matter where God had him. And the church, Paul tells us, is Christ's body, the means by which he does his work 
on earth. And think about it like this. When your brain wants to accomplish something, right? When you, when you want to accomplish something, it doesn't send out magic brain waves like Professor X or Eleven to get the job done. It uses your body. We don't have telekinetic power, right? We don't have ways of doing that, moving stuff with our mind like a Jedi. We can't do that. We have to use our body to do that. When our brain thinks something, we move our hand. We move our foot. We go and do the thing we are wanting to do. That's how things get done. Same is true for the body of Christ. You might have a different role to play than I do, but we are all a part of the same body. And God works through us to get the job done. And also the church is the bride of Jesus is what scripture says. He gave his life for. And if Jesus died for the church, we should be deeply devoted to it, right? We should be devoted. I know it's not perfect. (laughs) That's why Jesus died for it. Because we are a bunch of broken people in need of a savior. So are you invested in the local church? Are you invested? Is it something that you desire to grow in as being a servant of God's people? Listen, the church isn't some kind of event that you attend when it fits your schedule. It is something that you devote your life to because you have devoted your life to your Savior. It's a group of people living life together in community and on mission. It's not a country club that we belong to. It's a faith family. And it's not like a family. We are family purchased by the blood of Jesus. So become an active member, an active participant of the family today. So if you desire a life of glorious purpose, be humble, be truthful, be diverse, be surrendered, be invested, and then finally, be a giver. You're like, here he is asking for money again. Not quite. Let's look at verse 33. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and then to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. those words are highlighted in red in my Bible, which means that through the ages, God has made sure that all the scholars, all the translators, that people know those words were legitimately, verifiably spoken by Jesus, even though they're not in one of the four Gospels. It is more blessed to give than receive. Paul understood what Jesus had done for him, how Jesus gave everything for him. So let me ask you, do you realize what Jesus has done for you? on your behalf? Do you understand what he gave up so that you could have life? We respond by giving what we have because of what Jesus gave for us. We are indebted to him. And while Paul is primarily talking about money here, he is talking about money, the principle of being a giver goes beyond just giving money to the church and to the poor and and things like that. Jesus always gave more than he took. Always. That's a good question to ask in any relationship that you're in. Do you give more than you take? What is your role there? Are you a giver? Or are you somebody that just takes, takes, takes? In your marriage, do you serve your spouse more than you expect them to serve you? Do you go out of your way to serve them? Whose preferences do you think about more? Theirs or yours? Whose comfort and happiness are you more devoted to? Yours or theirs? 
in your career and finances, who is it for? Who is, who is that for? Is it about taking all that you can and just storing it up in your storehouses for that day that you can retire? Or are you asking God how you can leverage your career and your money to give to his mission and to make much of him? So friends, listen, God gave you your career as a platform to bless others and extend his mission, no matter what your career might be. Whether you work in the highest echelons of corporate America or whether you are a line cook at Waffle House, God gave you that platform to make much of him. You're not called to go make money and serve only yourself because every job is to be leveraged for the Great Commission if we truly believe the Great Commission. And the money you make from it, for followers of Jesus, we don't work so that at the end of the day we can have more money in our pockets. It's so that we can be more generous and give more and further the mission of God. Listen, greater financial capacity should increase our standard of giving, not just your standard of living, right? So in your friendships, do you give more than you take? Are you the friend that people know they can call on for encouragement, for help, to be that brother or sister that's needed? In your family relationships, are you the mom or the dad or the brother or the sister or the cousin or whoever that brings encouragement to your family? Not divisiveness, not strife. Friends, listen, Jesus gave up more for us than we can ever imagine more than we can ever fathom. We can never repay him, but like him, we can give to others. Just in being a generous person in life, not just with finances, but just giving yourself away and being that type of generous person. We can give to others like he did. Because of what he did for us, we should desire that every relationship we have on earth to be characterized more by giving rather than taking right? With your spouse, your kids, your parents, your friends, your career, your wealth, your resources, all of it is for him. So be a giver, not just a taker. So that's it. That's the outline for what it looks like to have a life of glorious purpose from Acts chapter 20. You be humble, be truthful, be diverse, be surrendered, be invested, and be generous. And to be clear, Doing these things doesn't save you. It's not a checklist. You do these things because Jesus has saved you. It's rooted in the gospel, right? The indicatives, what we are to be doing, are always rooted in that. So for some of you, you've been searching for your purpose, looking for it as if it was something that was lost and you need to find it, when in reality... You are the one that's lost because you've never trusted in Jesus. You've never had the correct starting point. If that's you, I implore you today to give your life to him. Start there. Find the real purpose of your life in him. Let him be the one who is driving the ship. Let him be the one who is navigating your life and you are surrendered to him. And some of you have been struggling with living out your purpose as a Christian and you need to be encouraged today, right? Don't give up. Don't give up. Finish strong. As we already read in Hebrews, don't lose sight of Jesus. 
Remember that your purpose isn't found in anything other than him, right? Keep your eyes fixed on the prize, the right thing, the one who purchased you with his blood. So as we move into this time of response, I pray that God would move in your heart as, as he sees fit. If there are things that you need to lay down, the altar will be open. If there are things that you need to repent of, if there is something that you need counsel with, Pastor Ken will be down front, and he would love to pray and counsel with you, or we can even stay after and catch up. Whatever it might be, if you are pursuing purpose in your life, let it start with Jesus and let it stay with you fixed with your eyes upon him. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again for just the model you've given us. Not in Paul. Paul's a great example to look to, but he's not the hero. You are, Jesus. So I pray today that we would see that the life that Paul modeled was ultimately modeled for him by Jesus. Because Jesus, you were humble. You were a God who gave all that you are for us. You humbled yourself, you came down, you walked among us, and you gave yourself for us. And I pray today that that truth would radically impact us, whether we've known it for decades or whether we're just hearing it explained for the first time. I pray today that we would make much of you, Jesus. I pray that we would surrender to you. And I pray, God, that you would just be glorified in everything. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things.